Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dragon Fruit. As always, I'm your host, Caroline Chang, and this is actually the first episode in a two-part series with the U.S. Green Building Council, Los Angeles. Today's guest is their executive director, Ben Stapleton. We took this conversation to specifically focus on the USGBC LA's Healthy Building Alliance and Net Zero Accelerator programs, which also connected us to more general topics such as public health, equity and representation, and technological advancements. This is a great episode if you are looking to transform urban spaces to be more sustainable, find support for your own startup and innovative projects, or if you just want to learn about the importance of the built environment and sustainability. There will be links and all of that good stuff at the end of the episode, as well as in the description. I hope you enjoy. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to have this discussion with me. So would you like to start us off by introducing yourself and introducing what the U.S. Green Building Council Los Angeles is? For Absolutely. Yeah. For, sure, sure. Thank you for having me today. <laughs> Uh, by the way, let me know if my audio has any background noise or not, uh, just because I've got a window open here. So Sounds great. Just let me know. Um, first of all, I'm a, I'm a Bruin, so go Ooh. Bruins. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I'm a proud Bruin. I went to UCLA for undergrad. I did go to USC for business school, but I'm always a Bruin because that was my... That yeah, was my, those are your Bruins. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I'm the executive director for the U.S. Green Building Council, Los Angeles. Um, we're an independent nonprofit, so... Though we're affiliated with the uh, national, the, the Green Building Council that runs the LEED credential and certification that many folks may, may know and, and love, uh, our mission is a bit different. We're really focused on accelerating sustainability in the built environment here in Southern California. Um, we're the largest green building chapter in the country and we cover LA County, San Bernardino, Riverside counties, as well as Orange County and Ventura County. So a pretty, pretty big area, over, over 20 million people. Um, and uh, we do most of our work is done through community engagement and, and education. And so we're really on a mission to, to, to be the premier you know, member-based sustainability organization in the region. Um, one of the things that I love to say about the built environment is it's really the fabric that knits everything together. Um, you know, if you're, if you're looking at mobility and transportation issues, well, that's, that's really people moving in between buildings. You know, if you're looking at waste issues, that waste is being generated in some way in a building. Uh, even if we're looking at, at you know, infrastructure, that's really there to connect buildings and places to each other. And so part of the reason I do this work is that I felt that by focusing on the built environment, it gives us something that's very tangible to work to improve that actually has far ranging impacts on, on everything else uh, around us. So diving into the Healthy Building Alliance, I guess, to introduce the program, what is it? But also, how is it different from other green building certification programs? For example, like LEED programs and everything like that. Yeah, so the, the Healthy Building Alliance really was a result of, of quite a bit of time for me, just kind of looking at uh, the healthy building certifications and processes that was out there now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are healthy building certifications out there like well and fit well, and I, I think they're, they're great. Uh, but having been through some of them myself, when I managed uh, properties, I felt like they were just very time consuming. And um, you really need to have someone who's focused and pretty knowledgeable to, to run those. And the reality is, you know, if we're ever going to get to, you know, class B and class C office buildings or 
multifamily buildings and retail and, and things like that in a scaled way, I felt like we were really missing something. And to me, it was really kind of an equity issue. You know, if we're going to have healthy space, it can't just be for those that have the resources or the time or the education to dedicate to it. It, it needed to be more accessible. So the Healthy Building Alliance is not a, it's not a certification. It's a commitment that anyone can make. Uh, we, we've debated a lot calling it the Healthy Building Pledge, but that just sounds <laughs> a little too elementary. But it, it's, you know, essentially you make a pledge to five principles. Um, so those principles around indoor air quality, green cleaning, uh, access to nature, inspiring movement, and uh, water testing. And we spent a lot of time interviewing experts in the space. And the reason we picked those principles is because those are what we felt like were sort of the low-hanging fruit that people could actually make an impact on themselves um, and our hope is this actually starts them on a journey to healthier space. So um, what we do is people sign up for the Alliance, we onboard them, uh, we have uh, checklists available, questionnaires, we have discounts in place with resource providers. So it's, my whole thing is like, hey, you sign up, you make the commitment, we help you on your journey so that you're taking personal responsibility, but you're also getting the information you need. Right. Um, and I just feel like that's something we really needed in the healthy building space, especially with everything we've experienced from the pandemic in the last year. You know, I think we're all more aware of our spaces uh, in ways now than we weren't before. And I think people need access to figuring out, okay, well, now that I'm either stuck in the space or I'm more aware of it, you know, what's really impacting my health from this space and how do I improve it? And, you know, it's astounding when you dive into the information around uh, how health of our environments impacts us and, uh, stop me if I'm going too long in this, but I, I feel no, like keep going. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, you know, indoor air quality is often two to five times worse than outdoor air quality. Wow. And if you think about buildings in some of our under-resourced communities, um, those tend to be built with cheaper materials, less well-maintained, mm -hmm. um, and they're using typically less expensive cleaning products, or there's just less awareness about how those products are impacting health, and so. I actually think that it's even more of a marker for equity if we look at the conditions of our spaces and there's such a lack of building level data on, on indoor air quality or water quality. It's, it's pretty astounding. And so we're trying to address some of those with this program. We, you know, we've been, we designed it, we launched it. We haven't gotten any external funding for the program yet. So we've been applying for some, I think as soon as we get a little bit, it'll really help us take it up a notch, but right. I welcome anyone to, to check it out. We have a home office version of the program, which is pretty cool. Uh, so you can sign up for just your home workspace. That's really cool. And you guys just launched the home office, right? Yeah, in January, kind of like new year, new you, you know. Nice. Your home office. <laughs> 2021. Right. So you kind of mentioned this where your data collection is part of the process, but I guess what type of data do you have people collect about their spaces and what do you hope to achieve with that data? That's a good question. Um, so for a long time, indoor air quality was very difficult to get good data on because the sensors were very expensive or the sensors that were available weren't very accurate and needed to be calibrated on a pretty regular basis, like at least once a month. So I think we finally reached a place now where the sensors are less expensive and are more accurate. You know, sort of the internet of things, you know, the cost of sensors continues to go down. And so you can actually get a, a pretty good indoor air quality sensor now for, you know, 300, $400 that will give really good data. I realize that's still a lot of money for a lot of people, but, um, you know, for someone who's managing a building or really wants that information, we felt like that was valuable 
And then you can do indoor air quality testing. There's firms that do that. It tends to be a little bit more expensive because something has to come out and some results in. Yeah. Um, but it's really that that data really looks at a variety of, of uh, factors that impact air quality for occupants. So there's certain kind of chemicals that would be in the air, CO2 levels, um, you know, carbon monoxide levels, particulate matter. So I, you know, we're all used to maybe looking at that from the fires this last year. I, I don't know about you, but I started checking like outdoor air quality data on my phone pretty regularly to see like, hey, when's my good window to go kind of or jog or something, right? Uh, and uh, so these sensors will track that kind of that kind of particulate matter data as well. That's really cool. This also kind of ties into, I guess, with the fire season being so bad, that's also part of it. But with COVID, people are spending a lot of time inside. Have you guys seen an increase in participation in the alliance? But um, I guess there's also economic problems so yeah we just launched it in in january i think you know when people get back to the office i think we'll start pushing the office side of it more we were we were right. pushing that a little bit in the last year but i feel like most people have kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit on on general office re-entry mm -hmm. um from our conversations with landlords and tenants we think this can be a really helpful tool actually for them to kind of come together around some principles because what we've heard from a lot of landlords is um, you know, they, they can't really go and test their tenant's space, right? That's their space. There's data issues, um, but they want to have a healthy building. Same thing back from the tenant. And so they were kind of looking for a framework to engage their tenants. And so we hope the Healthy Building Alliance can be that. On the home office side, we've actually had, you know, we're, we're well over 300 registrations now on the home office side. So that's moving along. I think that will continue to ramp up. It's just an awareness, awareness thing. Definitely. Um, I, did that answer your question? I hope I answered your question. No, yes, it definitely <laughs> did. Um, I guess pivoting a little bit towards the net zero accelerator, which brings attention and support to like innovations that can help with green buildings and making the built environment more sustainable. So I guess, can you also introduce what the net zero accelerator program is? And similar to the last question, to the first question for the Healthy Building Alliance, how is an accelerator program different from an incubator program? Yeah, it's, it's a, a good question. So um, an accelerator is really meant to be, you know, more of a sort of a brief moment in time, right? To accelerate, you know, whereas versus incubation, at least in my mind is more of a longer term endeavor. In my role previous to, to here, I, um, I was part of the founding team and I led operations and finance in my last couple of years at the LA Clean Tech Incubator, um, where we worked with, you know, probably hundreds of startups in my time there, and, and really grew a pretty sizable organization. And that's an incubation program was the main base. They, we added accelerator programs and, and lighter touch stuff later. One of the things that I really learned, um, I learned a lot of things during my time there, but one of them that really was intriguing to me is I spent some time running these industry-focused cluster groups. So you know, we had a, a group that would meet around innovation in water as a cluster, a group that would meet around innovation in urban ag, and then in energy, and in the built environment. And uh, I was just pretty astounded at how difficult it still is to, to get new technologies and innovation into buildings. It remains one of the hardest sectors to get into. And that's usually because you have really conservative ownership you usually have like three, I call it kind of the three headed beast of buildings. You have like whoever's running the finance side, 
you have whoever's running the ops side who could be engineering or could be someone different. And then you have someone on the property management side or the tenant. And they, all those three people sort of have different motivations to get the three of them to agree to like test something out is pretty difficult. Um, yeah. And the other thing that, that was interesting to me is that, you know, California has, you know, leading code, at least for the rest of the US, you know, there's countries in the world that have more advanced code than us, arguably, but, uh, and if you talk to people who run buildings in California, they want to achieve net zero, right? They want to make these things happen, but they need things they can use today that, you know, have a positive ROI and return on investment and make financial sense. And so what I kind of noticed from running these clusters is that uh, we really needed an innovation community around real estate in LA. There's not really one in, there's actually, there's not one in LA. There's kind of one in the Bay Area that's really split between a couple of VC firms. And then there, what, there is one in New York. And I think New York has the advantage that even though it's a huge real estate market, it's very centralized. And so mm-hmm. work together. And so we started the net zero accelerator here and our tagline is, you know, zero carbons or energies or waters or waste. And the concept was as an accelerator, we're not going to focus on helping you figure out the right legal status or helping you raise money. We're focusing on pilots and storytelling because those to me are the two most important things for a company getting into this space that dictates success. And so we went out and recruited over 40 advisors to the program who are architects, engineers, you know, facility managers, investors, and you know, tried to get all walks of life. And then we went out and recruited over 20 different pilot partners. I think we're actually over 30 now. We've all committed to take a hard look at pilots coming out of the program. It doesn't mean they're necessarily gonna do one, but what we ask is that they'll evaluate and either agree to try to test one out or to go through the process or they'll give us feedback on why it won't work for them. Um, and so we built this community out of those two groups. And then as we bring the companies in, we run them through about a two to three month, I'm putting it, they're calling it a boot camp, but it's really like, you know, we have a session once a week. And uh, we have really help them address buildings and look at financing, look at how to scope a pilot the right way. And, you know, pilots, you know, they have, an, a, they can be like a disaster and, and, you, you know, a company can do a pilot with someone and a lot of times young companies, especially startups will do a pilot mm-hmm. because they, they, they need to get something that shows traction and get, they get data. And a lot of times they'll do it with somebody who's not actually going to be the end customer or they, they'll finish it and they'll realize they didn't get the right data they needed to really sell it. And right. so as a startup, your, your, your capital is so constrained and your time is constrained. And if you spend all that time and money and don't get what you need, it can really, it can almost kill a company. Um, and so we, we try to help these companies kind of learn how to scope a pilot the right way so that it can scale and do it with a customer, um, those sorts of things. And so the Net Zero Accelerator is, is you know, it's really a, a nine month program. Uh, it has a definitive beginning and definitive end. So it's not, a, not an incubation program. Um, and I would encourage people to apply our applications open right now for the program. Awesome. So for, I guess, in the green building industry and in a lot of technology innovation spaces, it can sometimes very traditional, traditionally seem white and male. Is that something that you see with the companies that tend to apply to the Net Zero Accelerator or have you seen shifts in that? It's a great question. And, and, you know, I'd probably unpack that a couple different ways. I mean, first of all, I think the diversity question is a very real one, especially in real estate and in sustainability uh, that really needs to, to, to be addressed, you know, head on. Um, you know, we've been trying to focus on how we can diversify 
our pipeline of, of talent and expand that pipeline of talent for people just coming into our industry. But uh, it's, it's a big deal. And, and, you know, for us, when we think about sustainability, there is no true sustainability without equity, right? We, we need to have that in society. And again, this is my, my, my personal opinion. Uh, so it doesn't just apply like to be a sustainable society that includes, yes, that includes environmental sustainability, but also includes cultural sustainability, right? And all those other pieces. So right. um, as it relates to the net zero accelerator, I think we have actually a fairly diverse group of applicants for that program. Um, we do look at diversity um, when we approve companies getting in and, and trying to make sure it's balanced. Um, I, I come from a background where I, I originally started out in sort of the commercial real estate world. And then you know, I've always been interested in these things and got more and more sucked into to sustainability and, and innovation. Uh, but when I, you know, it's funny having been on this side now in the kind of the nonprofit world, the sustainability world, when I go back to these real estate events, I'm pretty floored, to be honest with you, about like how white and male it is. <laughs> and and uh, I don't know if other people feel that way. It actually reminds me of like when I was an undergrad, I worked for the Office of Residential Life at UCLA oh, as an awesome. IT manager. Um, and you know, this is back, you know, like I graduated in 03, right? So this is early, you know, I guess that may sound, seem like a long time ago now, but, uh, you know, and we talked about stuff amongst the managerial, managerial staff of the campus around diversity. Uh, and at that time, there was a really a high number of staff that were LGBTQ. And because at that time, if you think about that time, the campuses were a, a friendly place for a lot of those people to work where they didn't feel discrimination. And I just say that because, you know, look, I was 20, you know, 21 getting exposure to like this diversity training and I'm a, I'm a white male. That may not be obvious people listening to this, this podcast, but then when I went to start working in real estate, when I got out of undergrad, it actually really hit me as like a thing, like nobody's even talking about this here. And I look around this firm and like, literally everyone is white and male. And then when they go to hire people, they're hiring other white males who played sports who know somebody and it was yeah and sometimes it would almost almost it would be like a real turnoff to me and I'm not saying that in like a self-righteous way but I, it's something that that really needs to be addressed and and you know coming back to the work we do you know look you're never done trying to be as sustainable as possible you're never done trying to be as diverse or as equitable as possible it's it's an ongoing process if that makes sense and, and absolutely you know it's okay to say look yeah we're not we're we're not where we need to be we could do better, but the focus is on being iterative. We're not going to solve it today. We're not going to get to where we want to be a year from now. It's, it's, it's a constant journey, right? That's, that's really how it has to be looked at. Absolutely. So you're obviously a leader at the Green Building Council. <laughs> maybe not obviously. It's, I, might, <laughs> I might think I am maybe in this weird little digital box I live in now. <laughs> but I guess how, how, what, like, what has your path Sorry, let me rephrase this well. I guess, what has your path been like to get there? And how do you approach your work as a leader? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't really consider myself a, a leader, I guess, on a day-to-day on -day <laughs> basis or, or necessarily okay. think about, uh, you know, how am I gonna lead this month or anything like that? That's not necessarily a, a thing. Um, I definitely feel though, I realized that, and this is just, again, I turned 40 this last year. So maybe I'm just feeling, feeling midlife-y right now. <laughs> but, uh, 
you start to kind of ask yourself kind of what you're good at. And I feel like mm-hmm. one of the things that, that I'm good at, at at this point in my career is, is um, communicating a vision to people and extending the offer to collaborate and figuring out what kind of collaboration makes sense and um, really sort of trying to elevate and organize people to get there. Um, but I don't think if you'd asked me like, you know, to something you do, I, I mean, how would you even describe that? But I, I facilitate a lot now. And I think true leadership, I think really is facilitation on some level. I, you know, I don't know if you read Simon Sinek or any of his books, um, quick plug for him. He's just a, a good leadership writer. Um, but really leadership is really about helping people. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, helping people get money or get access to a job. It's, it's really trying to, in the case of what we do at a nonprofit, we're, we're trying to help our community via our platform achieve the goals of creating a more sustainable society, right? And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how I would answer that. And in terms of like my journey, is that part of your question too? You wanna to know how, yeah. how I can end up here? Uh, <laughs> so um, it's interesting for me, it's kind of funny, like as a kid, I love nature, mainly because my dad would take me hiking in the foothills here in Southern California all the time. And uh, I, all, I just really gravitated towards that and I still do. I wrote a song in, in elementary school on my Casio keyboard about saving the rainforest. That's this is so cute. a keyboard in the 80s, <laughs> like hit different buttons and it would had some like weird digital backdrop. Uh, and then yeah, I started working in computers because my dad had a computer repair company and I, I kind of got pulled into that during high school and, and college. Uh, but I never lost my love of nature. And even when I got into real estate, I was kind of looking to do something that would be a completely different skill set than working in, in the IT world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was. Um, but I was always been drawn to nature. And, and when I applied for business school, you know, I think I was maybe 25 or so. And I'd been in real estate a couple of years, uh, mainly doing tenant rep or like corporate real estate work. I wrote my whole entrance essay on essentially helping to create businesses that created a better world because they were just well-designed businesses um, that, you know, had positive impacts. And I think now that would be called sort of a social, a social VC firm at the time, there wasn't really a a topic for that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's still kind of what I'm doing. That's, you know, I really believed in clean tech early on when I was in business school. To me, that was kind of like, this is great. We're creating these businesses that are like, using technology and good business practices to make the world a better place. That's what I want to do. And, and I ended up taking my real estate work and starting a clean tech practice group at JLL, which was my real estate firm at the time. And, and, you know, at that time they didn't really have a, a like sustainability group. Now, now they do, now they have a big one, but so I ended up getting almost 150 people at one point participating in my clean tech practice group that I launched there. And I, I used to host this thing, which would probably now be a podcast, but at the time it was just a conference call. Yeah. <laughs> like sometimes, you know, a hundred people on a call and I would always have a guest speaker and I'd have some projects that people would talk about. And the CFO of the company that joining my call, which is, you know, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar global company. And she was just a greenie at heart. Mm-hmm. And so she found my group and started, and I had no idea she was even on our calls for the first couple if I had known, I probably would have been scared because I'm like, I was like this little broker out in LA, uh, but she ended up being very supportive of me and, and we did some great work there and I, I met a lot of great people. And then in 2011, I kind of realized, um, at least in real estate, I had the opportunity of like where I invested my time 
was where I, because I was pure commission based, would be where I would make money. So I invested that in working with, I wanted to be the green real estate guy in LA. Yeah. And so that's what I was working on. And at one point, you know, probably three quarters of my real estate business was all either um, clean tech related or green. I was doing a lot of, I did some weird stuff like site selection <laughs> for rooftop solar projects or biofuel projects. And I worked on uh, battery manufacturing facilities and just a wide variety of like just weird real estate. I was like the weird green real estate guy. Yeah, that's uh, a wide net to cast. Yeah, it was very weird. And then, you know, I started diversifying my time in 2011. At that time, I helped launch and found a program called the LA Better Buildings Challenge with a friend of mine who's also a Bruin, uh, Dave, Dave Hodgins, uh, who still runs that program now. And we grew that program, uh, at least while I was there, to over 60 million square feet of buildings that had committed to reducing energy and water use by 20%. And now I think they're over hundred million square feet. Um, and we grew that to a team of 10. And around the same time we launched that, I, I, I had done a business plan in, biz, in business school around creating a, a media and technology incubator for the West side. So basically you would have like, you know, uh, shared green rooms and video editing bays, but it'd be like a co-working space. And this is, this is in like 2007. And I went out and pitched it for money. And, and I pitched it to some of the um, angel groups around here. And, and I ended up deciding I wasn't the right person to run it and just wasn't the right time or whatever, mm -hmm. but I had that business plan. And so I got introduced to the, the two guys who started the LA clean tech incubator in 2011. And they were telling me their concept. And I was like, Hey, I did this whole business plan for this thing. That sounds very similar in a lot of ways in business school. Do you mind if I share it with you? And, and so I ended up working with them on that and doing the financial model for like the, the incubator. And they kind of pulled me in and uh, I ended up helping them with their 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 lease and stuff like that, and then I kind of got more and more sucked into the LA Clean Tech Incubator. Uh, I ran all the um, revenue and programs facing stuff for a while. I I was the lead for the development of the Lacrette's Innovation Campus in the Arts District, and then I managed the campus. And then my last year and a half there, I managed operations and finance. And being part of that whole experience uh, was amazing. I, I feel really blessed to have had that opportunity. Um, but also I learned so much there just about coming back to communicating vision. You know, we were creating this mm -hmm. campus that was really meant to be a, the heart of a community of people in LA who care about this work. And I was really intentional about that and went out and recruited people to join the campus. I did so many tours and, and meetings of people to show them the place and people would walk in and you would either see the light bulb go off or it wouldn't. And I had so many people who would walk in and kind of look around and be like, I'm, I'm sorry, what is this place? And I'd be like, oh, this place. And be like, can I work here? And I'd be like, sure, yeah, you can, you can work here. We have, you know, there's some forms to fill out and yeah, we might charge you something, but yeah, you're, you know. And so uh, I just think that was kind of, kind of beautiful that that spoke to people. And, and again, this is kind of early like co-working days too. I mean, we launched the campus in 2015. So co-working spaces were kind of becoming a thing around that time or a little bit later. But I, I can tell you there's so many people who found that place and you know, they were working in their home or they had their company and ended up working there. And we really focused on community. And I mean, people have come to me and told me that, you know, working out of that building really helped save their life because they were sick and they needed to be around people or um, just, you know, their company was, you know, they didn't have projects to work on. They met people there to work with projects on. And it just was really transformative for a lot of people. And, and I hope that place can still be that even when we come out of this pandemic. Um, so that's kind of my journey, you know, why I, I came here, I, I left there and, and came to the, the US Green Building Council, Los Angeles. Um, I saw the role come up and really I felt like the green building world needed more vision and leadership, like especially here in Southern California. 
I felt like I would go to these green building events and it was like this argument over which like building certification is best and whose project is like the, the best green, green, most green project. And in my opinion, those things are important, but, but it's not what drives the needle. We, we need to get everyone really working together. We need to get things that are accessible for the masses. We need to bring more people into the tent and believing. And it's honestly really frustrating for me sometimes when I go to all these green building events and they're like, oh, look at this amazing project we did. And it's, you know, it's a shed and it's completely like energy positive. And then I'm like, that's nice. What about like the rest of the world <laughs> that's out here? It's like the tiniest uh, niche. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic, but you get my, you get my point there. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to come here and try to make that effort. And I also think the lens that people look at real estate on in terms of valuation is really sort of flawed and it's been flawed for a long time. We don't, we don't take into the financial model, you know, the costs associated with climate change, the costs associated with health and, and employee performance and occupancy in a building. Um, you know, and if we started to take into account the true economic model of what's impacting the value of that building in that place, uh, the model would be very different. And, I, and if I could do anything over my time here, and I think it may be too much, it may not be doable, would be to try to shift that model a little bit so mm-hmm. that when people are valuing, evaluating assets, they're looking at more like, well, how is this going to perform in the face of, of higher temperatures long-term or increased fire risk or water scarcity? You know, how is this impacting the people who work or live in that building and, and the number of sick days they have or their performance? So I think those models need to shift. And I think they are a little bit. I think we're starting to see that, but we have a lot more work to do. No, no question. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess to finish us off, do you have any advice for younger students, younger professionals who are looking to work at this intersection of managing the built environment and sustainable innovation? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, one thing I, w- I would say is, is I think, you know, working with a lot of younger people, people get a little too focused on like, what is it I'm doing right now to solve this issue? Or this is my passion. I need to do that right now. And that's understandable. But I also think you need to think about, okay, what's, what are the moves I'm, I'm going to make to get to where I want to be in the next five to 10 years? Right? I think it's really important to have a five-year plan and sometimes it's not about you getting the job you want today. It's about you taking that job today that's going to position you to be in a place where you can take the job you really want three years from now, right, or two years from now. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a value in, in getting well-rounded experience. Um, so I'd, I'd say think a little bit more about the skill sets you need to execute on what you want to do and the variety of different roles and opportunities that could help you develop those skill sets to then get to a place where you can more transition um, the other thing I would say is that I feel like there's so many opportunities available now to engage in stuff in an extracurricular way. And look, the most valuable resource any of us have is time. Uh, and yeah. if you can put some of your time into these, these events, either after school or after work, where you're meeting people, maybe you're working on projects together, even if they're volunteer based. Um, I really think that decade in your twenties, and into your thirties to a certain extent, but where you, you want to maximize the number of relationships you're developing, the people you're meeting, because who knows where those people are going to go in their life. And, and, you know, if, if you're a working professional, 
you've met people, you know, you've always been someone who's pleasant to work with and, and you know, doing, the, doing good work, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years, 20 years from now, those people are still going to be, they're going to do something else, but you still have the opportunity to connect with them. And so you want to focus, I think, on, on building your network in a way that's authentic, that speaks to something you're passionate about so that you're still connected to those people in 10 or 20 years. And I think for me, sustainability has really been that because it's something I've been passionate about for a long time. And, you know, the more I've leaned into that, the more I continue to meet people who care about it also. And look, there's a subculture for everything, right? There's, some, <laughs> yeah. there's people who care about like all different kinds of things. This has just been kind of my, my thing, uh, you know, and, and so I would just say lean into that, you know, as, as somebody who's young. Awesome. That was great advice. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go because I know you have a big meeting coming up. But um, yeah, have a great week, day and week. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> no, thank you. I uh, appreciate the time. And, and uh, you know, for anyone who's listening, um, you know, I would encourage you to come out and check out the work we're doing. Um, you know, if, if membership is a challenge for you, our membership fees are pretty low, but you know, let me know, we can give you a free membership. We really want to get, you know, a younger, more diverse set of people engaged in the work to make this world a more sustainable place. I think it's really important. Uh, and uh, we need to shake things up. We, we can't be afraid to, to innovate, uh, to, to break the system a little bit because it's gonna take that to get where we need to be in the next 10 years, so, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. And, and, uh, yeah. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to join the Healthy Building Alliance, apply for the Net Zero Accelerator, or just learn more about the USGBC LA, you can do so on their website, which is usgbc-la.org. All of these specific pages will be in the description of the episode, and you can learn a little bit more about Ben there as well. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, feel free to reach out. And if you weren't so inclined, please share that you're listening to Dragon Fruit, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, and all of that good stuff. That's how we can really grow our community and keep incredible guests like Ben coming onto the show. Thanks again, and I will see you next time.